When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the Inside the Boards podcast, the podcast dedicated to helping you learn to think like a question writer so you can study smarter, not harder, and succeed in medical school. And now here's your host, Patrick Beeman. On today's episode of the ITB podcast, we are talking neurosurgery. We're interviewing Dr. Jonathan Razuli, who is a neurosurgery resident at Mount Sinai in New York. And then we're going to go over a few neurosurgery-related, at least kind of related, questions. Before we get into that, though, I just want to remind you, complete your Doximity profile by December 30th, and you'll be entered to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Thanks to Doximity's Residency Navigator. Just follow the link on this show's webpage, insidetheboards.com slash episode 016, all numbers, or go to docs, that's D-O-X dot I-M slash inside the boards to enter. If you're enjoying this podcast, I would really appreciate you either leaving me a review on iTunes or your favorite podcatcher and give me some suggestions on how I can make this a better learning experience for you. Suggest people you'd like to have interviewed for the show or what topics you'd like covered in future episodes. I'm very open to feedback. I would also greatly appreciate it if you would share the podcast on social media or with your friends. You can follow us at Boards Insider on Twitter or on Instagram and Facebook slash Inside the Boards. But it would mean a lot to me if you find this useful, if you were able to spread the word. Uh, Just know that I would greatly appreciate it. So without further ado, let's look at some neurosurgery questions. These questions are taken from the Open Osmosis platform first. A 35-year-old man is brought to the emergency department in a state of depressed consciousness and has a Glasgow coma score of 6. According to his wife, he had come home the night before with headache following a car crash where he rear-ended another car. His wife says he did not want to go to the hospital and instead took alprazolam to help him fall asleep. He expires in the emergency department. Which of the following is the most likely diagnosis? A. Epidural hematoma. B. Subdural hematoma. C. Concussion. D. Idiopathic intracranial hypertension. Or E. Subarachnoid hemorrhage. 
And the answer is B, subdural hematoma. On the board exams, whether it's a neurology shelf, step two, emergency medicine shelf exam, etc., you have to know the difference, how to diagnose the common imaging findings, and some of the anatomy involved in subdural hematoma and epidural hematoma. So a subdural hematoma forms between the dura mater and the arachnoid membranes. Head trauma is a common cause of subdural hematoma, especially in elderly patients. It is caused by tearing of the bridging veins that drain from the surface of the brain into the dural sinuses. In contrast to its cousin, epidural hematoma, there is a progressive neurologic decline in Tacoma. It is diagnosed on CT scan when there is a high-density crescentic or moon-shaped collection. Some of the essential things you have to know related to a subdural hematoma are the CT findings. So crescent-shaped, concave, hyperdensity in the acute setting, and this is important, that does not cross the midline. And because the CT findings in epidural versus subdural hematoma are so important to distinguish because they are very likely to show up on a board exam, it's useful to come up with perhaps your own sort of memory aid or mnemonic. So two things you can do to help you remember the differences between subdural and epidural hematoma. So in my mind, I think of an elderly person driving a car at nighttime under the moon, right? Nighttime. And the sort of whiplash injury that occurs during a car accident tears the bridging veins. So I've just kind of associated my own mental picture of what a person who is afflicted with a subdural hematoma uh, would be doing at the time they suffered that disease to help me remember that the clot on a CT scan of a subdural hematoma is going to be crescentic or moon-shaped, right? So the second strategy is for related diseases that sort of have some overlapping features, but for which you really need to differentiate them and not confuse them, is the advice that I once heard from, I believe it was Golyan, and that is, if you can't remember both, remember one, and the other one is the other one. And that seems kind of obvious and trite, but if you have a tendency to get confused about items that kind of fit into a comparison table, just memorize and study one of them and know it well, and essentially, for the most part, ignore the other one. If you encounter a question about entity number two, if it doesn't match what you remember about entity number one, you can rule it out. Create a mental picture as a mnemonic. Use what works for you. I like words, so etymology helps me. You could even add in your mental picture that as this elderly person is driving at night, they're over a bridge when they get hit, causing a tear in the bridging veins. It's those sorts of things that can help you uh, memorize information. Let's look at the other answer choices. So A, epidural hematoma. Suffice to say, a whiplash injury with its sudden acceleration or deceleration tends to cause tearing injuries to veins as opposed to arteries, which is the structure affected in an epidural hematoma. But we're going to get a little bit more into epidural hematoma later. Epidural hematomas are commonly caused by discrete trauma to the lateral side of the head, but I'm going to leave that for now because we'll get into it more with the next question. Answer choice C was concussion. 
So a concussion is a alteration or, or loss of consciousness due to head trauma, which is characterized by confusion and amnesia. D was idiopathic intracranial hypertension, also known as pseudotumor cerebri. This most often presents in obese young women and is not precipitated by trauma. On the boards, a younger woman with headache, obesity, increased ICP, papilledema, has idiopathic intracranial hypertension. Another kind of, I guess, associated uh, symptom is a sixth cranial nerve or the abducens nerve palsy. The sixth cranial nerve allows you to look laterally, so a person who has that palsy won't be able to do that. And it's diagnosed by an elevated CSF pressure on a lumbar puncture. Answer choice E was a subarachnoid hemorrhage. This was discussed in last week's episode and often presents with sudden severe headache, thunderclap headache it's often called, or the worst headache of my life. It is generally caused by rupture of an aneurysm, as well as headache can also have meningeal signs like neck stiffness. And just as a reminder, if subarachnoid hemorrhage is suspected, a CT without contrast is the first step in diagnosis to look for blood in the subarachnoid space. If it is negative, but there's still a high index of suspicion, the next step in management is a lumbar puncture to look for xanthochromia or red blood cells in the CSF. And xanthochromia is that yellow discoloration of the normally clear cerebrospinal fluid due to breakdown of essentially red blood cells within the subarachnoid space. All right, let's move on to another question. A 23-year-old man comes to the emergency department after falling and sustaining a head injury one hour prior. His friends state that he was skateboarding when he fell and struck the left side of his head against a wall. He was initially alert but became unconscious 30 minutes after the incident. Examination shows minor scalp abrasion at the site of the injury, a head CT is obtained. Which of the following is the most likely diagnosis? A. Parenchymal contusion. B. Epidural hematoma. C. Subdural hematoma. D. Traumatic subarachnoid hemorrhage. Or E. Toxoplasmosis. So, as you probably gathered, um, this question's correct answer is epidural hematoma. The features that make this stand out are all in this vignette. So the 23-year-old man has trauma to the side of his head. Epidural hematoma is classically the result of a temporal skull fracture leading to an arterial bleed into the epidural space. And this artery, the middle meningeal artery, is the one affected and the one you have to know. Next, this patient was initially alert, but became unconscious 30 minutes after the accident. So in contrast to the progressive depression and consciousness associated with a subdural hematoma, an epidural hematoma has a classic lucid interval, it's called. The people who suffer them, they seem fine, but then boom, not fine. With epidural hematomas, the bleeding is between the dura and the skull. And just like subdural hematoma, it's diagnosed by a CT scan with a characteristic blood clot that is described as a biconvex or lens-shaped or lenticular hyperdensity. 
that does not cross the suture lines. So on the boards, somebody with severe trauma to the lateral side of the head who loses consciousness but then wakes up, seems fine, has a lucid interval, and then rapidly deteriorates. Things you need to remember are it's an epidural hematoma on CT scan. It's biconvex or lens-shaped, doesn't cross the suture lines, and is the result of injury to the middle meningeal artery. And based on some of the feedback I've got, people like the podcast to be a little bit on the shorter end. So since the main learning points today are subdural versus epidural hematoma, we will leave it at that to give time for our interview. And like I said before, please, if you have the time and you enjoy this and it's helpful, give me feedback and share the podcast on social media. Welcome to the Match Smarter segment of the Inside the Boards podcast. We've teamed up with Doximity to connect you with program directors, residents, and applicants from top programs to help you navigate your specialty choice and the residency process as a whole. Check out the Residency Navigator at residency.doximity.com to get the most transparent and useful advice on programs you're considering. Doximity, the leading professional network for doctors. Match smarter with Doximity's Residency Navigator, residency.doximity.com. That is really difficult to say. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so Dr. Jonathan Rizzuli is a fifth-year neurosurgery resident at Mount Sinai in New York. He completed his undergraduate medical education at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine. Jonathan, thanks for taking time to offer your perspective on neurosurgery as a specialty. Absolutely. First thing I want to ask you, what does it take to be a neurosurgeon? That is a great question. It, to be frankly honest with you, something I hear pretty much all the time from you know interested medical students, from interested high school students, from interested sub-eyes who are doing rotations with us. I always say it every single time, what does it take for me to be a neurosurgeon or even a neurosurgery resident? And you know, I would say there are a couple of factors or a couple of traits that we always um, look for in the people that are applying. The main things, I mean, the list can go on and on and on forever, but the main things that we're really looking for are people who are very committed and thrive in an environment of fast things happening right before your eyes, kind of a high stress, high reward, high risk environment. People really um, wanna go for that challenge, really wanna really um, seek and really um, thrive and, and excel in that kind of environment, kind of a high pressure, kind of a high stress environment. If it's something that you really enjoy and really like, then neurosurgery is really very much a field for you. Um, we also look for p people who have a very high attention to detail as well, to a very, you know, as, as neurosurgeons, we're very detail oriented people. And um, every little thing we we tend to, um, to overanalyze and sometimes even obsess over. So, yes, yeah, so if I recall, there are a lot of soul sigh in the brain. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, exactly. And but trust me, by the time you're done with neurosurgery residency, you'll know all those things. By <laughs> you'll better, you'll know it better than your own phone number. Believe me. And really, um, probably, you know, of course, those are some of the traits we look at. But we also look at people who are um, very much, um, very much people who kind of put. And I and I kind of hate to say this, but there are people who kind of are willing to do whatever it takes to get the job done. Meaning, if that. That requires you to stay in the hospital a couple more hours just to make sure a patient gets the CAT scan safely or to make sure that patient makes it to the OR safely. You're willing to do it. And really no job is really something that you can't get done. You know, somehow 
that neurosurgery as in no matter how big, how complicated, how difficult the task is, they will get it done. It, those are kind of the traits we look for in, in, in people. Okay, fair enough. So what do you consider the three most important aspects of a residency application in neurosurgery? So you just give you a little anecdotal evidence. So when I was a uh, medical student applying for neurosurgery residency, it was very difficult to, to just looking through the internet and looking through forums and basically everything that was available at the time. It was just hard to kind of get a sense of what were the most important things that these programs were looking for. And it was kind of hard to know what exactly was it that I should really focus my application on. Was it, you know, should I focus on my, my, my scores, my academic performance? Should I focus on, you know, my letters of recommendation, my extracurricular activities, my, you know, my, you know, just the list goes on and on and on. Anyway, so I would say if the, the three most important, now that I'm, you know, more senior resident and I'm actually now involved in the process of selecting um, applicants, um, I can tell you the three things I look for and the three things that I would say in general, most of the attendings I work with and most of the people who are involved in the residency selection process are looking for. I would say, no, and this is really no particular order. Sure. These would just be the top three. One, obviously, would be academic performance um, in medical school. You know, we really want to see um, high board scores. We want to see good performance in the first two years with the more didactic years. We want to see good grades in your clinical years. And in particular, um, for neurosurgery, we want to see that you did well in the surgery clerkship. I mean, that, that pretty much goes without saying. Um, that that would be kind of, I would say, in, in many cases, would just be kind of an initial filter. Um, if you can get past that filter, then the other things we look at, and these are just as important, um, would be number two, I would say, your letters of recommendation that you would obtain from uh, rotating with your school's um, neurosurgery program and the programs that you may do away rotations at. We really want to see solid letters of recommendation from um, other neurosurgeons in the field, preferably neurosurgeons that are well known. Meaning, you know, generally when you work when you do an away rotation at a um, at a hospital, you will get a letter of recommendation from the chairman of that department. So we really want to see that, and we want to see like a good letter. Um, and then number three, I would say the the last thing would be your performance on those away rotations. We want to see that you, you do well, that you get along with the residents, you get along with the attendings, that you are knowledgeable, that you're you know, kind of a go-getting personality, easy to get along with. That'll probably be the most important thing. You know, someone that we can say, oh yeah, he, that he or she feels like, you know, a resident here. It feels like one of us. That, that, that really is very important. Um, those would probably be the three things that we look for. Now, of course, I would say, just number four, just there, but doesn't quite make number three, but it's just just there, just underneath, is, I would say, your, your research. Um, it's definitely important, um, but we would never, never discount somebody's application because they lacked research. Um, you know, if those, if those three things are in place, it, it, would, it wouldn't even really factor in. Okay, so um, you mentioned letters of recommendation as being an important component. How do you select uh, the people that uh, you want to write recommendations, uh, have write recommendations for you? Great question. So, you know, I would say this. In general, um, the way the application works is you will have about three letters of recommendation that you can give. Number one should be 
the chairman of your medical, uh, your medical school's hospital, meaning, um, so I went to Albert Einstein and the medical schools, uh, the hospital's affiliate with my medical school is Montefiore hospital. And the chairman there is Dr. Eugene Flynn. So my, no question, I should have a letter of recommendation from him. And that goes without saying for any um, applicant, you should have at least from your home school, one letter of recommendation there. Um, your other two, I would say, are up to you. You can either have another neurosurgeon, and I would say in that department, or maybe somebody you work with very well, um, write, write you a letter of recommendation, or you could just do um, get those letters from your away rotations. When you do, um, let's say, an away rotation at, uh, I'll throw out one, so I did one at NYU, and you can get a letter of recommendation from the chairman there, or even a neurosurgeon there. There's no... Um, there's no, uh, I wouldn't really say there's any uh, difference between them. But um, if you did, I would say you should also have a letter if you if you, there was something unique about your application, like you did two years of research with um, uh, some uh, leading scientist or somebody who knows you very well. You should definitely include that because that, that would be important um, in your application as well. So anyway, to, to, to recap what I just said, you would probably need to have, you definitely need to have a letter of recommendation from the neurosurgery chairman of your home school. Um, and ideally, two more letters of recommendation from either um, other uh, away rotations, the chairmen from those departments, or neurosurgeons in that field who, who, can, who can be well known as well. That would be ideal. Um, last but not least, if you did some sort of like a year long research or you know did a lot of research with some an individual who doesn't happen to be a neurosurgeon, um, you should probably get a letter of recommendation from that as well. So, Generally, somewhere between three and four letters. You don't have too many. Okay, fair enough. So, um, what what would you tell a student who might then be, say, a first year or or maybe even like a pre med, thinking, ah, being a neurosurgeon would be cool, um, without trying to encourage any, um, I, I guess, uh, anxiety or anything like that? How would you advise them to approach a plan to apply to a neuro neurosurge residency? Yeah. From day one of medical school. Exactly. Um, I would say, to be frankly honest with you, that uh, that individual is a rare individual. <laughs> okay. It's definitely it's definitely hard to uh, sometimes to swallow that pill of, uh, of um, you know, kind of getting your application together for neurosurgery. But anyway, if I was going to go back in time and um, if I back then when I knew if I say if I could know what I know now, um, I would say you could do the following. I would say. Um, num first and foremost, you would you should get an idea of what um, neurosurgeons do in an OR. If it's possible, you should definitely try to reach out to some of the neurosurgeons at your um, at your home medical school and see if you can maybe go in a case and just see if it's something that interests you. And if it's something that um, you know you say to yourself, "Wow, this is you know the coolest thing I've ever seen." And to be frankly honest with you, that's that's how I was when I first you know saw my first neurosurgery case. Then you should definitely go for neurosurgery at like full force. I would recommend um, that um, if you can, it's not like super essential, but if you can get somehow involved with um, some of the research that's going on in that department early, that would be great. And if you can get your name on you know, a, a publication while you're still in, in medical school, that'd be fantastic too. Um, there's not much you can really do in your first two years other than really just kind of you know, rotate with the, the neurosurgeons there and, you know, get your feet wet a little bit, maybe get some research projects, but really the focus, you're really, your focus should be doing well in, in your courses and, and doing well on your boards. Um, once you're in your third year, then you can potentially do some 
if you're again if your school allows it you should do some rotations with your neurosurgery department there and ultimately when you're in your fourth year this is when you have the most flexibility and the most ability to actually show us that you're interested would be to do like a month long or two months or however whatever is you know within the curriculum of your medical school to you know come and join us on the service let us know you and ideally if you've done some research and you kind of gotten to know the department at that time then um then uh you know we kind of know you already and it, it'll be like very seamless transition now for somebody who this is more my example who became interested in neurosurgery later in their medical school career um I, so I, I initially when i started medical school i wanted to do cardiology which is which was kind of interesting is like totally on a different spectrum of <laughs> yeah for real <laughs> but um i became interested in in surgery and then ultimately neurosurgery when i was in my um, third year clerkship and at that point you know i was a third year medical student and i had felt that you know my application could have been a little bit more tailored towards neurosurgery because prior to that i had done a lot of things related to cardiology but really nothing in neurosurgery so i decided to and this is totally not necessary, but I'll just I'll preface it by saying that. But I decided to do a year of research with the Department of Neurosurgery at my home program um, between my third and fourth year. So when I completed my third year, I did a year of research with the department, and then um, went into my fourth year. And that's and that that's you know not required at all. Um, it's just purely you know if it's something that you'd be interested in. And I'm just kind of speaking hypothetically to you know medical school I might be listening. It, you know, if you're interested in doing it and you want to, you really want to get some research under your belt, then by all means, you should, you know, consider doing um, a year of research, but it's totally not necessary. And, um, you know, if you, again, if you can get involved in our, in our department and in our program early on, then you're, you're fine. I, I wouldn't even, I wouldn't even really worry about it. Let me ask you this. How would you meet the objection to maybe somebody who has an interest in neurosurgery but just can't stomach the thought of a seven-year residency. Yeah, that's actually, it's so funny because um, I, uh, you know, when I was um, really, I, I kind of struggled with the decision to, to go into neurosurgery. I, I, I thought to myself like, man, seven years, that is a long, long time. And do I really want to do that? And I just kept going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. But what I ultimately decided, I, you know, obviously I decided to go into neurosurgery. Um, I, I thought to myself, you know, if if that's a field, if neurosurgery is a field that you can say to yourself, I just can't see myself doing anything else, then those seven years will just fly by, really. Like, I honestly, I'm in my fifth year now. I remember my first year of residency like it was yesterday. I, I can't even believe I'm in my fifth year now. It's it's It, it goes by that fast. So I would not discourage anybody from, uh, from, you know, from kind of negating neurosurgery as a field just based on the years alone. It is long, definitely, but, you know, if you're going to be a neurosurgeon, God forbid, if you ever need a brain surgery, you would want that guy to be like, <laughs> like been through it all, you know? Absolutely. So, okay. Um, well, what other advice do you have um, for students who might be considering uh, the specialty? Um, any other like really high yield points that you'd like to share? Sure. Um, I would say the big things, like I mentioned before, that we look at are your board scores, your letters of recommendation, and your performance on your away rotations. There, there tends to be, you know, I wouldn't say that your your boards, they're they're very important. You know, it's not I wouldn't say that, you know, don't think too, you know, don't not focus on it, but you definitely need to make sure your board scores are high. But there's a certain point, there's basically there's a 
cutoff for what we just want to see, a, kind of a minimum. And above that, it's not that important. So you don't want to get into this thing of, oh, but you know, I, do I need to get 250 or 260 or 270? You don't, you don't want to be in that in that cycle. It really, you know, I wouldn't focus too much on that. So just, you know, try to do as well as possible. Okay. In terms of your letters of recommendation, they are very, 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 very important. There tends to, again, there tends to be this kind of thought that, or at least when I when I was a medical student, one of the things I thought was, oh, you know, these things tend to be very generic form letters that, you know, because when you're when you're actually on the rotation, um, you know, you don't. It's it's kind of odd. You don't often. It may be very possible that you don't really spend too much face time with the chairman there. And you wonder like, wait, I didn't really see that chairman very often, but he's let, writing a letter of recommendation about me. Like, how is that, how's that possible? It seems kind of odd, right? But um, what happens is, um, just so you know what happens behind the scenes, the chairman will reach out to the chief resident of the service and will ask them, you know, they get a list of all the people who did rotations there and they say, hey, this person, Jonathan Rasuli, how did that person do on this rotation? Tell me about him. And that chief resident will say, oh, yeah, Jonathan was a great guy. He was fantastic. He was on top of things. He showed up early. You never want to be late to, to rounds. That's super key. And even goes in residence any, anywhere. You don't ever want to. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but we, we note those things, you know, if, oh, yeah, that guy was late. You know, it may seem trivial, but, you know, we'll, 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 you, know you don't want to be late. Um, you know, he was on top of things. Or they'll say, oh, no, Jonathan, eh, kind of lazy, uh, you know, doesn't really, didn't really show interest, didn't really want to get in the OR, da-da-da-da-da-da. And the chairman will write his letter based on that. Um, so you, when you're on your away rotations, um, focus, your focus should be to get along with the residents there as much as possible. Make sure you feel like they feel like you're part of the team. Make sure they feel like, you know, you, you're, you know, enthusiastic. You want to get things done. Um, you're not just kind of a, what I'm looking for, kind of like a fly on the wall, just kind of watching things. You they want to feel like you're integrated. Like, oh yeah, we can count on you. You know, we can ask you to do things and get things done. And if the more you're able to do that, and the more you're able to show that you're kind of a part of the team, the better your letter of recommendation will be. Because you know, when when they ask us ultimately, oh, how did this person do? We'll say, oh yeah, he was fantastic. He was great. We want him here, or or want her here. We want this person here in our in our residency program. And your focus should be more on that, more so than you know. You know, I, I remember I would like read up before cases and try to, you know, impress the attending. But with my not, they, they're, they're not even going to remember who you are when that case is done. So, <laughs> but the residents are always going to remember you. They're always going to remember how, your, what your performance is. And you really want to make sure that, you know, you do well there. All right. Well, last question. Does it ever get old making jokes like it's not brain surgery or anything? <laughs> never gets old okay. never ever ever gets old <laughs> i figured i had the sense of that so awesome well thanks for your time and can people connect with you on doximity absolutely anytime i'm more than happy to answer questions i'm actually um uh part of the uh, neurosurgery interest group at um, mount sinai um so i, I it's one of my personal interests is to um, you know help out medical students and kind of give advice because it can be very daunting and very difficult and very kind of confusing to navigate all the information that's out there and kind of just kind of filter it down to what's, you know, key and important and focus on. Awesome. Yeah, absolutely. Well, ladies and gentlemen, Jonathan Rizzuli, fifth year neurosurgery resident at Mount Sinai. Thanks for your time. Thank you so much, Patrick. The music for today's show is thanks to The World is a Beautiful Place and I Am No Longer Afraid to Die. The song is I Can Be Afraid of Anything off Harmlessness. 
You can follow them on Twitter at TWIABP. That's The World is a Beautiful Place. Or check out their website, theworldisabeautifulplace.com. Thanks, guys, for letting us use the tune and keep making great music. Inside the Boards is in no way affiliated with the United States Medical Licensing Examination, Comprehensive Osteopathic Medical License Examination, National Board of Medical Examiners, the National Council of State Boards of Nursing, National Board of Osteopathic Medical Examiners, or any other licensing or examination body. All exam names and other trademarks are the property of the respective trademark owners. Content discussed during the program is the property of Inside the Boards, or the attributed trademark owner and may not be reproduced without permission from the appropriate entity. Inside the Boards fully adheres to the respective policies on irregular behavior outlined by the aforementioned credentialing bodies.